Hey everybody, welcome to CookPod. It's like a podcast, only better. I'm Peter Barrett. This week I talked to Megan Denver of the Hudson Valley Bee Supply in Kingston. I've known her and her partner York for quite some time now. I wrote about them shortly after they opened, seven years ago. And we've been pals ever since. I swing by there to get a lot of honey for my meads and other honey-based fermented beverages. And it was a pleasure to spend an hour with her talking about the path that led her to where she is and and her contagious enthusiasm for all things related to bees. Uh, In addition, she's doing some pretty exciting work on the charitable and advocacy front that you'll hear her talk about in a little bit. You can find her at HudsonValleyBeesupply.com, and their Instagram is HVB, uh, that's letter H, letter V, B-E-E. So here's me talking to Megan Denver in my dining room on another perfect spring day. Uh, she brought me some echinacea honey, and I gave her a bag of salad. Enjoy. You know, another sort of, you know, the oceans are kind of largely mm. invisible, right? Mm-hmm. And most people don't, you know, even if they live on the coast, they're not mm-hmm. sort of, ex- they're not engaged with the mm-hmm. ocean. Yeah. And whereas, you know, farms, fields, flowers, these are things mm-hmm. that people are more aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the fish are in a really bad way. Yeah. And, but it's largely invisible and mm-hmm. you can still go to the store and mm-hmm. get fish. Right, it's all still there. So yeah. what's the problem? Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to, but I wanted to, you know, bees being an even more visible canary in the yeah. same coal mine, as it yeah. were. Yeah, it is. I think it's very much the same. I think uh, the idea of fish, you know, remember we had farm fish like in the 80s, that was going to be the solution. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why are we farming them? Because the ocean is question mark. And bees, I think it's the same way. I think honey coming out of any big city, it's basically licking the flowers, right? Mm-hmm. So, and it's the nectar from the flowers. And I think people are really misguided uh, eating honey from big cities. I think you need to know, just like where your fish would come from, you need to know where your honeybees are foraging. Mm-hmm. And all of our bees, we look at a, a three-mile radius and make sure there's no commercial agriculture and they are getting the most health. And those are the things that make honeybees uh, healthy and that they can fight off any pests and pathogens and um, some illnesses that, that comes through is a really good nutrition just like us. So you think like Bro- Brooklyn rooftop beekeeping is not... I mean, maybe it's a it's, it's good a cool for pollinating, thing. but it's not totally for the honey. It's totally great, right? It's a great. It gets people in touch with their food, um, it's because we've been doing this for a while. We have like little things we talk about, and one of them is that keeping honeybees starts a conversation about where your food comes from because mm-hmm. they're in your backyard, and then you start to go, "Geez, they pollinate all these things," and it's like, "Well, how can I support the bees? I can plant more pollinator plants. I can buy more maybe organic or local food because I know that where my food's coming from." So we think having bees just changes a person's thoughts is where's their food's coming from. So if you're in Brooklyn or you're in Philadelphia and you want to keep bees, I think that's great. But I would uh, probably test the honey. Mm-hmm. I would probably have it tested because the uh, exposure to herbicides and insecticides is probably pretty, pretty high. Not only just pollution generally. Right, yeah, right. I, I mean, I wouldn't, you know, would you generally eat, like, 
rooftop lettuces and all of that. I mean, it's like a question mark for me. I lived, I grew up in LA, mm-hmm. part of my life, and I lived right next to the freeway for a little while when I was going to school. And the amount, like on the windowsill, we would close the windows, right? Because you right. can never open the windows. The amount of black yeah, grunge, the diesel exhaust. And, yeah, just yeah. I'm sure that's and in LA. I know that's still to be true. The pollution's really bad. So bees are feeding on all of that. Right. So I think uh, that's a question mark for me. I want really clean food. Yeah. And I want really clean honey. And and so you, I mean, obviously up here and where your farm is up in Green County, you have yeah. the luxury of being able to yeah. situate your hives yeah. three mi- at least three miles away from any kind of industrial yeah. agriculture. Yeah. Um, a lot of people clearly don't have that luxury. Yeah. Um, and I read somewhere a while ago that a shocking percentage of supermarket honey mm-hmm. is not honey at all. Adulterated, yeah. It's, or it's, it, in some cases, there's no honey there's in no it. There's no honey in it, yeah. I think uh, the standard, they won't even say that, like, what, that, what, so what the U.S. Uh, market is trying to say is that honey has to have pollen in it. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's just sugar water, right? Right. Um, and government and national honey producers, there's all of this really resistant to, they want to be able to, so big commercial beekeepers want mm-hmm. to move their bees into almonds and do their pollination contracts, and honey is kind of just a drag to deal with. They'll sell it out to a big honey packer who then repackages and sells it to those brands like Subi. And all they want to do is burn it off so it doesn't crystallize, so it breaks down all the enzymes, burns off the pollen, and then really what are you using it for? And when they and when they do that or when they superfine strain it to yeah. remove all the pollen, you can't trace its origin because there's right. nothing in there that tells what plants right. That's they the were. whole Chinese problem. Right. So we're not allowed to import Chinese honey. But all of a sudden like Turkey could import like ten times than they'd ever ever before had, or Vietnam all of a sudden. So all of so that So they're laundering the totally laundered. But then they so then they super they super filtered it and then um, there is a DNA now that they mm-hmm. can get at the pollen. Um, so it is, but it's very expensive. And who's really keeping track of that? So, you know, you live in a simple life here in, in a beautiful way. And so do I. And I think, you know, farmers markets, um, supporting your local beekeeper, laying eyes on your beekeeper, yeah. laying eyes on who's who's butchering your cows. So and like any other animal product. Yeah. Yeah. Very much Know so. the person who's And like your fish. Yeah. yeah. Like exactly. to me, big question mark fish. Like they're licking, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like the same thing. Where are they growing? In what pollution are they growing in? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'd really want to know like, do you know your fish and do you yeah. know where they came from? Right. Yeah. So, all right. So you're from LA um, and you were out there just as a little kid. Yeah, back and forth between uh, East Coast and the West Coast as a little kid. I grew up in L.A. because my father was in the industry there, Uh um, did some television. And then my mom kind of was in the East Coast. Um, But really the first exposure to my experience in honeybees was my dad owned a big, big farm, uh, Black Angus, up in Delhi. Oh, nice. And we had honeybees there. And my dad was always a bit of a, like a like a wannabe farmer. He was mm-hmm. always growing things, whether like it was in a pot on the back porch or mm-hmm. whatever. He was like that kind of person. So the farm made a big imp- impact on me. And I think having my farm now is definitely a legacy. of. And it's not farmers. far from there either. It isn't, no. Yeah. It's, it, it has a similar feel. We still call it the farm. Uh, my family comes and they're like, oh, you did it. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I kind of repeated myself. Yeah, I mean, I, I have, you know, my, my mom and her parents had gardens. and it, it, Is that but, what started? Because your gardens are amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a different level than she was doing it and that they were doing yeah. it at. But they were all very serious about growing their mm-hmm. own food. And, you know, you know, the homegrown tomato thing, obviously, because there's nothing better. But mm-hmm. um, my mom, before she had to go to work when I was, you know... A, a tween. And this is in the city? No, where is this? This is in Mass- Concord, Massachusetts. Okay, oh. Um, yes, which is now a suburb that I couldn't even <laughs> afford to, you know, think about living in. Yeah. Um, but at the time, it was kind of, you know, semi-rural and yeah. pretty laid back. Uh, 
and so yes, during during her you know housewife years, yeah. um, she had the time to garden and bake bread and do all these things that I do. And it, it really, you know, if you're the receptive, because my brother mm -hmm. wasn't, for example, yeah. it didn't land with him. Yeah. But I think for a receptive kid, having those things around, having that connection to the food yeah. and the, the production of food, and I, I think it really, you know, it. it it Makes it implants work. itself in your brain in a way that doesn't go away. Yeah. And did she grow things that just just for your family to eat, or yeah. was it for neighbors, or just for you guys? Pretty much just for as us. Like a garden. Yeah. I mean, she would she would can and stuff. Or? She didn't really can. She did bake bread. Mm -hmm. um, well, that's awesome. But she didn't. Her mom preserved a lot. Her mm -hmm. mom made a lot of jams and, mm -hmm. and jellies and and her and my her dad, my grandfather, um, fermented pickles. So I learned. I was into lacto fermentation way before anyone else. Right. You know. <laughs> Um, what, it was I just, just called I just, pickling. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, was just, it was just making pickles. And, and yeah. because he learned it growing up in a shtetl outside Krakow, you know, oh, which is wow. what you did to survive through the winter was wow. you salt preserve, you made sauerkraut yeah. and pickles. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, but I just wrote a thing actually about that, oh, about how, cool. you know, that again, you know, that imprinted on me when I was six years old or right. whatever. And those are the things, right? Absolutely. That you can really reference when you get to a certain age. And it was his recipe that was my way into fermentation. Really? Yeah, I remember it. Just, just talking with him, watching him do it, helping, whatever. Really? It just stuck. This know? is like early teens or? Yeah, I mean, even younger, 10 maybe. Uh, mm. I mean, they were near me for my whole childhood, so I'd see them all the time. Yeah, so just. And he would grow the cucumbers, and he told me, you know, I use a 5% brine, and he boiled the rocks and weighed the pickles down, the cucumbers down, so yeah. they stayed beneath the brine. And he kept it in the basement. And those are honestly the three things you need to know to make pickles. Which really? Is the, per the salinity, percentage salinity, yep. weigh it down, yep. and keep it cool. Yeah. That's it. That's, That's the it. beginning and the end <laughs> of making pickles. So, But I got all that. I yeah. internalized all that early, and it stuck with me. And when I moved up here and started my first garden, which is not this one, yeah. um, it was all there for me to just remember and try, and it worked, and that was that. Yeah. You're going to write a book on this garden, right? One hopes. Because there's pictures, so we know we have the visuals. Yeah, one but hopes. really, it's just, it's coming back. It's coming back to home. You know, and I think beekeeping has that same thing when we, we teach. It's like, oh, my grandfather kept bees. And mm -hmm. I, when I was a little kid, I saw the bees. Or I've always wanted to grow something. And I, you know, this takes much, your garden takes much more maintenance. But bees, on the other hand, every, you know, seven to ten days you're in. But this is a, this is a. Well, it is. I mean, it's, it's designed, we can go out after it and I'll give you a little tour. To. But, yeah. um. It's. I designed this to be as low maintenance as possible, given how really? big it is, it's and big. the fact that I don't really get any help from the rest of my family. Yeah. So it's kind of all me. So, yeah, it. It's. Um, I made a lot of mistakes in the first garden, mm -hmm. and this one is the one that represents the learning mm -hmm. from that. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty good. There are still a couple you things. You grow really change. unusual stuff, though, not just the basics. Oh, well, I've got um, sesame. I'm growing sesame seeds, <laughs> um, which is really exciting. They have beautiful flowers too. Um, and what else? Um, I'm trying a Russian rice mm -hmm. that doesn't need to be flooded. Yep. That did okay last year. Mm -hmm. I'm trying that again. Yep. Um, I tried peanuts last year. I may do that again. i got to get them in the ground if I'm going to do it. Yeah. A lot of different greens. Nothing super crazy esoteric, but I try to something new every year. Yeah, just to kind of expand. There's yeah. always something to try, too. Someone's favorite gourd or something to try. Yeah, I'm also trying, I think, to shift a little more towards growing calories. Than oh, interesting. Leaves. Yeah. You know, leaves are great. Yeah. But there's a lot of them. Yeah. And I'm, um, you know, things oh, like beans and sense. potatoes and, yeah. you know, parsnips, things that, that actually. Yeah. Are, it's, it's slightly more interesting to me. I don't have the room to grow grain, or I would. We did up on the farm. Yeah. When we first, uh, when we first bought the farm, I'm not sure if we told you that they, 
So we're the only fifth owners of this land, mm-hmm. and it went from a, a patent to a deed, and wow. so that's why it's called Patent Wall Farm. Um, and we read the pat, the, read the first deed, and it said that um, the person who bought the, bought it from the patent owed them an acre of rye, mm-hmm. use of the thrasher, and storage in the barn. So first thing, when we kind of cleared a little bit and got moving, but needed to put a cover crop in, we grew rye, because there's also a cemetery there. Mm. And up on this knoll are the pierces, and we were like, we just want you to know, <laughs> you know, we're doing the right thing, and we're growing this rye for you. And it's beautiful, and we got um, a 1963 combine. Oh, nice. Um, and combined the oats um, uh, for the winter wheat we grew, and we ground it and made pancakes, and oh, we just fantastic. felt like... Oh, so we would go back to small grains uh, yeah. once we get some more fields cleared. But we've really enjoyed. We also enjoyed growing peanuts, um, watching the bees. Anything that would be uh, bee pollinated, that kind of seems to really want to be our focus. Sure. Um, and for the bees and for all native pollinators. Yeah. And how long have you had the farm? Did that coincide is, with opening the store? Or? It is as a result of the store because uh, the store became very sick. So we're in our seventh year. At the store. At the store. You so were I wrote like, about you, you were like in the right first when you year. Opened up. Yeah. <laughs> you did the best pictures. Oh, thanks. Yeah, and the article is just that was that actually was right around the time that I started to kind of get my act together as a photographer and feel like I knew what I was doing. They were beautiful. I did a piece on you guys, and I did a piece on the nuns who make cheese in Connecticut, mm-hmm. and both of those I feel like I shot really well. Yeah. And I started to have more confidence after that. Yeah. No, it was you were it was you gave us a nice send off. Like, okay, you're going to do good. Good. Yeah, yeah. I was yeah. so excited, though, to, yeah. you know, when I think it was Katie told me about you because yeah. she got her bees. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that, so it ended up being that um, it was successful enough to where I didn't know exactly what to do with the profit at the end of the year, but I knew I was going to uh, um, not give it to the government. <laughs> I guess I can say that, right? Um, I wanted to reinvest in the business, but after a certain while, you can only buy so many, like, beautiful extractors and, you know, right. and it became kind of gross at the end. Well, of the and you're also hemmed in there, like you couldn't expand geographically. Where no, the didn't want to. Were... Happy to stay small. Happy yeah. to know our customers. Didn't want to get two or three businesses going. Really loved that model. But this bulk of money at the end, um, we saw this uh, piece of property. We keep bees in Oak Hill, which is on um, this uh, intentional community called the Seven Tribes of Israel. Oh, sure. It's beautiful people. Beautiful. I know land. they run the Yellow Diner or whatever. Yellow Deli. The yellow Deli. Yeah, right. yeah. So we've kept bees there, and it was our most beautiful yard so we were looking for like a couple acres maybe up to seven maybe so we could get a far exemption if we needed to um and then i was uh, my guilty pleasure is zillow mm. I, I just can't stand it i just love looking at what's for sale and i get it it's window shopping but for property <laughs> exactly yeah. Right. Yeah. you don't have to buy anything no, you no. can be aghast at two million dollars in woodstock i know um and it came up, this property is 57 acres, and it's undulating, and it has lots of water, and there's 200 feet on the Catskill Creek, and a tiny little farmhouse that was running down, and it was nothing what we wanted except water and some land nearby. And I drove up, and I was like, oh, I can't afford it. This mm. doesn't make any sense, but I'm home. And I thought, oh, this is it. Like, I will figure this out. And it resonated, like you said, with that okay. Delhi memory, right? It did. It has something, it enough did. in common that you yes, just kind of clicked exactly. with it. Yes, exactly. Petiter, like yeah. much like time, like much, instead of 500 acres, 50 acres. Um, but it really had that kind of like, oh, I want to do this. This is not this is my version of our farm when I was a kid. So mm-hmm. um, beautiful place to keep bees and fun to grow stuff there. And then um, just we've just been able to add to it. So the pro- so what really bought the farm were the bees. Mm. And so we honor them and make sure that we grow everything for them That's as far right. as we can. And so how did you come in terms of like educationally and vocationally, how did you come to this career? Yeah. Because uh, 
you know, you started the store seven years ago, but presumably there are a whole bunch of years before that that you did some other <laughs> yes, things. Yes, I did. So uh, I went to Loyola Marymount in LA, mm -hmm. um, and I was a graphic designer. Okay. Actually, so I went to Loyola Marymount in LA, mm -hmm. um, then uh, decided that uh, I was pre-law, and I was really meant to go to law school. I worked for an attorney, and I thought, I want nothing to do with law, because I'll just always be unhappy, because I always want it to be right, and I have a much too sense of fairness and mm -hmm. honesty, and I thought, I'm just going to be one of those really just heartbreakingly attorneys. And I'd worked for someone for about a year and a half and thought, no. And I needed at that time, I kind of sensed that you needed to keep getting something like a, a degree. So I have a public, a, a graduate degree in public administration and policy analysis and hmm. master's. It was just something to do, just yeah. to keep going. So never used it and then started kind of bebopping around, checking in with friends. And graphic design is really what I've done for my whole career. And um, worked here. Uh, worked in the city, worked for Sony BMG, did a lot of local musicians, mm -hmm. a lot of Tony Levin stuff. Oh, nice. um, like album covers? And yeah, and nice. all the CD stuff. Jerry Murata uh, and I were um, uh, a very early item. <laughs> really fun guy, enjoyed that whole scene. So you um, ended up here fairly early then after school? I did, yep, pretty much right after school. I've been here a while. And what, what brought you here? Your mom was my still mom, here? My mom was here, and I just figured out, well, I'll just come back east and check it out. And I really didn't love LA because I think my sensibilities have always been with nature and always wanting to be outside and always in that idea that every single bit of Los Angeles is owned by somebody. And then you have the parks, but the parks are, you know, it's just very structured and there's nowhere to like stop and pick wildflowers alongside the road. You know, that kind yeah, of Yeah, I do know. I mean, and also the parks are almost by definition really rugged mm -hmm. and, you know, there are rattlesnake warnings mm -hmm. everywhere, bobcats. You a know. lot of eucalyptus, which I love. But Yeah, yeah. no, I mean, it's beautiful, but, but it's, it's, not, it's not nature as I grew up understanding it. Yeah. It feels harsh and austere yeah. and you still have views of the city from every mm -hmm. direction. You can hear it from every direction. Yeah, and you can smell it. Yeah, yeah. Have you have you spent time in LA? Or? Yeah, my uncle and my brother both live out there. Oh so yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've spent some time there. Are they in the industry? My uncle is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he's been doing special effects for decades. Really? Yeah. What is he? Where does he work? He has his own company. Oh really? Where yeah. in the valley? No. Uh, in Santa Monica. Really? So my brother does special effects. Oh wow! And works. He's worked his whole life in LA. They probably know each other. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Now he works for Nick, Nickelodeon, ah. and he does uh, prop work on a, a show called Henry Danger, and he loves it because he's older now, mm -hmm. and they work regular hours, like kid hours, and it's like totally stable. They have big Nick budgets. I bet they do. Yeah, I, they must. that's really fun. It's not that big um, of an industry. No. And plus, they're in the same union. Well, and also when you've been there that long, and have, you know, you and especially in the effects community, it's pretty yeah. small. Oh, and what's his name? Uh, Matt Beck. Okay, we'll have to. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll send yeah. you the name of his company. Patrick Denver too. Cool. Yeah, cool. Okay. Uh, Click. <laughs> so, all right. So, around what day? So, you finished college and moved out here. We're talking what nineties? Um, uh, late nineties. Late nineties. So I was, I was in LA. I graduated in eighty six. So then I just spent a few years kind of doing consulting stuff in LA, and then ended up back here. Um, and then really got into graphic design that way and um, just to have had my whole career that way. I will say, though, that there was a point where I thought um, there, I was doing print work and like all print. So I and then when print changed to web, mm. you know, I would do Photoshop skins and all of that. But I felt kind of like, is this it? You know, like my work's gone in a year. Someone's rewritten all of the code. It's And I started learning some of like C++ and HTML. And I thought, I don't want to be I want to be out there. I don't want to be stuck in here. So I had the. Um, opportunity to say, okay, wait, I want to think about this. And I was working for a local company here that does images for textbooks and that kind of, he was a really sweet guy. Yeah. And he had bees. Uh, and I okay. said to him, would you 
would you, are you, is that you? And he said, I would love to show you the bees. And so I had a mentor to teach me beekeeping, which really changed everything. And I say that once, so I got my bees, I studied, 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 I got my bees. And the first time I worked the bees for myself, I thought, I will not be the old lady with the cats, but I will be the old lady with the bees. bees. Like totally fast forward. I just knew it. It was forever. And it's interesting. The fact that he was so eager to mentor you, you obviously know many more beekeepers than I do, but I have yet to meet one who isn't unbelievably Mm -hmm. generous with information and really, really wants to tell you anything you want to know. Yeah. And wants to teach and wants to show you. There's a a real generosity that's kind of built into the passion. I agree. It's kind of like, it couldn't be like cooking though. Mm -hmm. If you've got a great recipe for something and someone's lamenting how they haven't been able to get you know, just something just right, and you know what it is. Can't you just are so inspired, mm-hmm. right? To share. Yeah, that. I like to teach cooking. I yeah. do. I mean, I like I've to see seen people, your... I like to see people's delight at figuring something out or yeah. learning something. You know, I've stalked you on Instagram. I know that you teach. It's not stalking. That's what Instagram's for. <laughs> <laughs> it's public. Right. You know, it's... Right, that's, true. that's true. Except I follow no other cooks. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, so I could. They could be stalking. Well, well, we've known each other for a while now. That's true. Um, all right, so he taught you, and then um, you were already, you have the house you have now in what's your yeah, here. Yeah, yep, and that's when I, and I thought I'd like to grow something. I was flying back and forth to LA. I was doing some production work with my brother out there. We had a small production company. We were pitching some stuff, and I knew I couldn't do a garden, and I didn't want to, like, fence in my property. I felt like, oh, I've just come onto this land. I cleared the land, so mm-hmm. I knew I didn't, I kind of felt like, let's just let things kind of sort of sort themselves out. And when I thought I could do honeybees, and I remember being a little girl, and that, and I'm not, you can't go back to the bees, Meg. You can just stay right here and look at the bees. And I thought, no, no, I'm gonna keep bees. So mm. yeah, it, and that, and having bees in Woodstock is not the most ideal no. because they don't have as much forage. Uh, keeping bees in a forest doesn't produce a lot of extra honey, but it produces just enough for them, mm-hmm. and maybe just a little extra for us. But it it's more just animal husbandry, and if you can keep them where there's open old pastures and old farms, where there's all those hedgerows, that's where they'll really produce a, mm-hmm. a, a good bumper crop of honey. So, so land the land that the borders of open land, mm-hmm. or yeah. fields that don't get mowed but once a year, or yeah, something like that. That's right. Yep, old farms, old pasture land is really the best, and then water source. Um, so that's something that. Um, you know, we can put out water for them, but really I have a pond. So I knew that was a good water source because in the summer they really do need to cool off. They the do. I notice after a rainstorm right now, it's, um, it's actually, I was a little embarrassed that you were coming over today <laughs> because there's very little in the way of flowers happening because mm-hmm. the fruit trees are done. Mm-hmm. The dandelions are done. Mm-hmm. The clover, you'll know the, the yard's full of clover. That's good. And so the one thing I was going to use to defend myself <laughs> against the lack of flowers on my property right mowing. now. <laughs> no, is that exactly. I've actually yeah. spaced the mowing out. Yeah. So I let the dandelions do their thing first yep. and then mow. Yeah. And then I let the clover kind of do its thing yeah. and then mow again. But also the clover, especially the white clover, it'll will flower back. right like two yes, inches off the ground. it will. Also, if you shear, it'll come back. Yeah. So it's not like the worst. But yeah, I think uh, I think we could all do less mowing, really. Yeah. Yeah. And also we're now, you know, the kid is is a teenager. So he it's not like um, he's particularly interested in doing the little kid yard activities. Right. Plain. So, I mean, I tore my front yard out already, as you right. saw. <laughs> but the backyard... Um, it, nobody's really using it for recreation. Yeah. It's nice to have a little sun, you know, a little exposure yeah. to the sky. Yeah. Um, I don't love houses that are right up against the woods because, yeah. you know, uh, also for growing things. But, um, yeah, I mow much less than yeah. I think most people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, obviously I, yeah. we spray nothing at all. No, so important. Right. Actually, you're, so you're within flying distance of the colonies that I have in Woodstock. 
Yeah. Oh, as the crow flies, yeah. Yeah, and there's definitely lots of beekeepers in Woodstock, but it's just not a bumper crop. At one point in my front field, um, I didn't have the shop at the time, and it wasn't quite set up the way I needed to for bees, so I put probably 100 colonies just temporarily. Like I remember seeing like a massive wall <laughs> Just of to grow them up, and yeah. I thought, I'm not sure in Woodstock how long I can get along with this. I need like two more weeks before somebody freaks out. Um, but it is, I mean, as a nursery, it's a really sweet property because I can come home and feed them or tend to them. But um, now we have different, and we can do that up at the farm now yeah, as well. Yeah, and you have you yeah. still have hives down at the shop, right? We do. We have in lots that, of colonies there. Lot ne- the yard next to the... Yep. Yeah, yeah lots of... And that's actually not a bad place to keep bees. Um, it's not a big honey crop for us, but um, it's a good place to grow stuff up. Well, and also now, um, you know... Since Gill Farm is no more, nobody's spraying yeah, anywhere thankful. near you. Yeah, that's They right. spray pretty hard. They did spray hard. Um, and also, the uh, uh, Kathy, the Boyce Farm there is uh, lets their fields go pretty far. Um, in fact, they're planting industrial hemp. I think 70 acres of oh, industrial cool. hemp, yeah. And we and have bees on hemp You have well. that little CSA right next, like right across from you next to the big engine place, like right at the bend in Sawkill there, but I don't think oh, they yeah. stuck around. I don't think they did. Um, yeah. And you know there also there's farm stock now across the way. No. On Esopus Drive or whatever it's called, I can show you where yeah. they are. And they're doing organic CSA oh, farm nice. right in Kingston. You know, we're doing Great Song Farm CSA as a, a shop. It, they're across the river, but they come into Kingston once a week. We always look to support a CSA. We, you know, it's we're not a big group. There's four of us, so we just put it on the table and divide yeah. it as a nice. family share. All right. So, so the number of hives up at the farm now is pretty big, right? Yeah, we probably we, we have small colonies. So we have about eighty of those, mm-hmm. and then we have about twenty production colonies. But then we have out yards. So we have Oak Hill, and then we go across the river to um, a farm, beautiful organic farm, Chase Home Farm. They do cheese. Oh, and I know cows. them. Sure, I know Rory. And right, yeah. they're yeah. great. And then we do. Um, Farm On Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, we keep bees there as well. And they those bees were on hemp last year as well. And so you service those? Source. You visit them regularly yeah. just to so there's maintain. like 20 colonies there up there. And then we also have another um, in Preston Hollow. We have another nice... So we try to keep the, the out yards... You can keep about 20 colonies uh, in an out yard. Uh, it's like our number that works for us. Uh, and then space them in kind of a loop. So you get to visit the bees in loops. Yeah. And is there is there any kind of leaving aside bears, which can be solved with an electric fence or or whatever? Yeah. Um, is and we talked when I when I interviewed you in York for the for the piece. Um, you know, we talked about the mites and we talked mm-hmm. about the different, obviously the pesticide pressures, um, and other kinds of infections that can. Is there any kind of strength in numbers situation where having more hives makes them less vulnerable, or do they, if they're close enough together, do they keep each other warm somehow? I mean, is there? No, closer together is actually worse. It's worse because things can spread faster. That's exactly right. Yep, yep. You could see it would go either way, but in this way, it's if one gets sick from something, they just spread, spread, spread because they're always kind of sniffing around. Mm-hmm. Like, can I? Get and they in, rob each I, other. I, don't they? Do, sorry, can I get in there and? Are you defending that quite as well as you should? Yeah. So any that disease can spread. So really having smaller um, out yards with, but in our area with our bears, you can't just space them 200 feet apart. But if we stuck one in your front yard, in your backyard, that would be the best. But mm-hmm. then you'd have a whole setup in the front and back. So it's not, it's the ideal would be to have them spread out. Um, but normally we keep them quite close together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Try to find the, like, split the difference and yes. get it yeah, yeah. far enough. Exactly. Um, so how much, uh, 
you obviously sell all your honey or you sell a lot of your honey at the store. Do you make only your own honey or do you buy from other beekeepers? Yeah, or? we do like a, a community, a community uh, wall of honey. So if you're a beekeeper and you have some extra honey and you, we know you and you, we think, you know, we kind of vet who we sell. Sure. Um, we actually don't make a profit. We just sell it straight at their cost. So we feel like that's a community thing for people. You know, I've gotten a few hives. What am I going to do with all my honey? Um, can I get, can you buy it from me? And so we, we provide that as kind of like a community thing. That's but we right. do sell most of our honey um, straight out of the shop. We've gotten um, a few big orders for honey for... Um, beauty products hmm. and only people that we think um you know we won't, we don't really sell wholesale bulk because we think it's we want to support the community people love to stop it at the shop we well you know yeah um and they uh we sell thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds of honey do you know what your total yield is anyway? we're running around 10 and 10 to fifteen thousand pounds of honey wow. yeah that's amazing from it how is. many how many hives then a couple hundred colonies you know some years are better than others uh hmm. two years ago we we just get by with the amount of honey. Was that because of the harsh winter? Yeah, was the, yeah, harsh winter and really not a great summer, super rainy. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Just tough. But, um, yeah, but every year so far we've made it as far as our customers' demand. Uh, this year we sold um, some honey uh, to a company called Briagio. It's a hair care product, and they're going to use it in their hair care, but they're also giving back to a nonprofit uh, that we really believe in called Bees for Development that I've traveled with. Yeah, and so that's what I, you just got back from London and you've traveled yeah. a yeah. bunch recently. So, yeah. so tell me what, what that's all about. Yeah, so kind of like having the shop be successful and wanting to do something with the money and kind of do something and for the bees. Uh, the other part is we needed to give back to the bees. We knew that we needed to find a nonprofit um, that was doing really good work. We knew we weren't going to do that. It's like <laughs> take on everything. Right. Um, so we knew Nicola Bradbear um, from some conferences. We'd heard her talk and we just kind of poked around and I went over to visit her in Wales and to see her nonprofit. It's about 25 years old now and she does impeccable work and her whole philosophy in the poorest of the poor to teach them beekeeping, mostly in Africa, she, I mean all over the world, but right now they have a big project in Ghana and a big project in Ethiopia that's uh, currently on the ground. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea is that philosophy of teach a man to fish and don't give him fish and mm -hmm. don't create donor dependency. And what her philosophy and what she teaches and how their whole organization works is uh, if that village or these people um, have any resources to make hives, let's teach them how to do that. Mm -hmm. Because bees are really easy to get. They feed themselves. They Honey is a known product in most countries. And beeswax as well. Now, beeswax can be more tricky. You have to get that usually exported. But so much pressure worldwide on, on lack of clean beeswax. So that's not too hard. So she implements all these programs, and we thought, oh, we can give to her. We really can. So we started giving uh, a portion of what we make to Bees for Development. And then, of course, as any smart person would do, so can you help us a little bit more? And she's just lovely. And so in uh, Feb De December, I went to Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Never been there. Beautiful country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing beekeepers. Beautiful people. Too. Beautiful people. Went to southwest Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. um, traveled into the forest, the Majangir, where they really traditional beekeeping with log hives up in the oh, wow. trees, and they climb them and they know their bees like they know, like you know your cats, mm -hmm. your great cats. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it was really a beautiful experience, and I went as um, a research assistant for Tom Seeley, who I is a, a neurobi um, entomologist. Oh, and he's your partner with the, uh, you got to remind book. me, what the book. I did a book, yes. Following the Wild Bees. So he was meant to go. I was supposed to go with him. Last minute, he couldn't go. So I went with as a field research for him, and that was really interesting. And then I also traveled to Ghana, where there was an amazing project they have on the ground. Um, they So 
you know, the milk, you know, those cashews are super popular now. Cashew milk, sure. nut milk. Yeah, yeah. So Ghana has a really strong cashew market, but really big commercial cashew farmers. Mm-hmm. Then, like anything, there's the small farmer who's struggling. Right. And through um, a person on the ground that her with bees for development called Kwame, mm-hmm. he did a small study to see if putting honeybees on small cashew farms could increase their yield. Because they're pollinated. They're, they're, they're right. Cashews they're are pollinated, pollinated by, by honeybees. Okay. And native bees. Uh-huh. But if you put honeybees, just like on any crops here in the U.S., if you stuff them with honeybees, they're fully pollinated. So most of our crops here could probably be pollinated by local bees, right, uh, native bees. But if you put honeybees on, you get higher yields. It totally worked for these cashew farmers. Mm. So this program got up and running last year, where there's um, they trained uh, these beekeepers, these young young people, really earnest, great people. They each have 25 farmers, and those farms all have bees on them now. And so they're getting amazing yields. And it was just, it was like it was like Christmas to seeing these people. They were just so thankful. This program's working. They have more hives now. They have honey when their cashews are finished. It just the timing worked out. That's and one great. of the things that is even more so how do we keep them from spraying there, right? Like right. That's the question mark. Is the the smart thing is now underneath the, the cashew trees they're growing ginger, mm. and just that way they're not going to spray because now they have a crop under the trees, and there's a really vicious little ant mm-hmm. that's like if you just put a piece of twine between the trees and a little bit of meat, mm-hmm. they're carnivorous mm. and they'll protect anything from these cashew trees, but not the bees. They don't attack the bees because the bees are just pollinating. Mm. So there's this beautiful thing happening in Ghana um, that I was really just so happy to see and that Bees for Development was doing that. One other quick story is that we went to this other place called Don Cochran. Mm-hmm. There's a national forest. These people were displaced years and years ago. The honey hunters go in and they get collect the honey from the wild bees and they bring it back out. Well, they sometimes they fell the trees, so now they can't go in. So now they literally are getting arrested for bringing honey out of the forest. So it was a project that needed to be funded. And I met with two villages. We met these amazing people under these beautiful trees or meeting trees and just poor, like no mm-hmm. electricity, no running water, just yeah. just exquisitely poor. But but really honorable, really want to do this. So the honey was a part, like a vital part of their yeah. living. And now it's not. They can't do it because no. now it's a form of poaching to go exactly. take it out of the woods. Right, exactly. But they have bees coming out of the woods, coming out of the woods. They'll not hard to catch bees there at all. So they needed about twenty thousand dollars. So we so we came back to where we're staying. They were her Kwame, who's on the ground in in Ghana, and mm-hmm. Janet, who I went with for bees for development. Met, they did a budget, I was included on the budget, and the summer, uh, last summer, I did a fundraiser for Bees for Development, just sold a bunch of stuff that someone had given us for Bees for Development, and I made $10,000, and I thought, oh, wait a second, (laughs) I think I can do this, Mm -hmm. I think I can fund this. So, last year I started a 501c3 for Bees for Development, Mm -hmm. so that they could get corporate donations, um, because that's what's needed. So there's Bees for Development North America, is something that me, Tom Seeley, and York are the uh, board of directors. And so I had this $10,000 set aside uh, for Nicola and Bees for Development. And mm-hmm. I came back and I thought, I bet I can get another 10. Sure. And I did a GoFundMe mm-hmm. and I put it out there. And in 10 days, I had that and then I was done. Amazing. And so, so as a beekeeping community, I spoke at three meetings, just got done. It was mm-hmm. like people just got it done. And out in LA, right? So he got the cast and crew to give money and it just all came together. So Bees for Development North America has funded a project. Um, for in Ghana, which feels so great. And that was just this year. It's just this year. And they just started in May. Um, And they sent pictures of them making the hives and 
um, putting out the hives. Do so they have particular, because I remember when I was in Italy, um, oh, yeah. they're recognizable as beehives, but they just have a slightly different look, yeah. different kind of doorway system. And, and I'm just wondering, like, you yeah. must see different, different traditional constructions from all over. A lot of logs, weaving, woven hives. And uh, uh, the kind of honeybee in Africa wants to, uh, it wants to be a cooler hive. So you want kind of like a top bar hive, mm -hmm. a long hive, like a cindric. Cylindrical? Cylindrical. Yeah. A cylindrical hive, yeah. So I've seen all kinds of different ones. Okay. Actually, I brought a hive back. Did you? Without bees in it from Ethiopia. Mm. It's a good talk. Um, and, Sorry. And no, no, it's, uh, this is why we're here. Um, the Something that else that we talked about when I first interviewed you was the um, crossbreeding with wild bees, which oh, had yeah. the grooming behavior, which was good yes. for lice, and also they seem to have more resistance to certain diseases. Yeah. Is that something you're still actively... It is. We still uh, are so interested in the wild honeybees. And um, with the work that Tom Seeley's done at Cornell, mm -hmm. um, basically three things. So he's watched those wild honeybees since the 70s. And they've, they've maintained, right? They're, they haven't died out. There's no colony collapse up there. It's completely uh, sustainable. And the three things, kind of what I'd mentioned before, is the hives are farther apart, mm -hmm. really good nutrition, and they swarm. They're allowed to swarm, which breaks the brood cycle of the varroa mite and um, anything else that's going on in the colony, sends the old queen out, they make a new queen, and that's their reproduction. So um, as beekeepers, we always want to keep our colonies from swarming, but uh, it is a really healthy thing. So dividing mm -hmm. them in the spring, you can kind of uh, artificially swarm for them. Uh, I remember um, a few years ago in Woodstock, my neighbors had us, they had a, a, a one hive, and it divided, and they had this huge swarm <laughs> hanging out of their tree yeah. for a few days, you know, while they send out scouts to find a new home. Yeah. And um, she called me and asked me if I knew anyone who could come. Yeah. But at the time, I didn't. Yeah. But I think I, we, she ended up finding somebody who came and kind of collected yeah. the hive in a plastic garbage can and <laughs> took it away. Or I think, actually... Maybe he didn't take it away. I think he recommended they just get another hive. Yeah, and just put it in. And let them go in there. Yeah, just this morning, Yorick came in, and he had a giant, he had just clipped it off the tree. Mm -hmm. It was probably a foot, two foot high swarm, and he said, can you get that box? And I was like, are you serious? And he just set it in there gently as can mm -hmm. be. Yeah, it's this time of year. It's it's actually quite fun. And up at, uh, at the farm, we have put so many bees. We call them bees in the trees. But that's, mm -hmm. again, a normal thing. And yeah. you have wild... Bees. I don't know. I guess probably in mass you had when you were a kid. You probably saw I don't honey recall bees in seeing the lawn. swarms. Um, but bees in the lawn. Oh yeah, bees all around. There were bees everywhere. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and this was before and... neonicotinoids. I don't know because I grew yeah. up. I mean, you and I are roughly the same age. So I was. This was in the seventies. Yeah. Was beautiful. Much less. Beautiful story. A couple of years ago, um, we've these women. There's three three women that have done everything kind of since high school together. They pick things to do, and one of the latest thing was beekeeping. They mm -hmm. had to do together, and she came in. I guess it was last spring, and she said, um, she told a story about her uncle who's a small apple farmer, kind of farms everything, but has apples, mm -hmm. and actually hires pollination uh, hives to come in and pollinate his apples. And he said to her, I don't know what you and your friends are doing, but I've ordered less hives this year. And I was like, that is the ticket, mm. right? Because there's wild bees, and there's maybe there's uh, managed colonies nearby. But he even noticed a difference, that, that there's more wild honeybees and mm. either managed honeybees, that he didn't need to get bees for his farm or less bees. Hmm. And that's kind of a goal for us. And so when you, when you I want to I hear about the book, but I'm also like, when how is it that you go about, because they're, they're compatible, they can breed with each other, the wild. They're and, totally the same. Domestic. So there's an argument if you Google it. That's really quite good. Um, between feral and wild. So okay. uh, 
I side with what Tom Seeley called, describes as wild, that bees are not domesticated. Mm-hmm. We don't feed them. We can feed them. Mm-hmm. But in order to be feral, they need to have been domesticated. Mm-hmm. So what we keep in our boxes are wild honeybees. Mm-hmm. And that they go out into the wild and live on their own is what they choose to do in in, in nature. Right. So there really isn't that uh, difference between domesticated and managed. There is a difference in the breed of bee and mm-hmm. how... Um, so the study they did up at Cornell that Tom Seeley did is that the wild bees didn't really interact or mate with the managed colonies because the managed colonies were out in the sun mm. and their drones would get up earlier and leave the colony and the the ones in the forest were later. So it was almost a timing issue. Whereas if you had managed colonies kind of in a forest like Woodstock, mm-hmm. they would mate with the wild bees. You would get that same genetic potential mm. out of both of them. Okay, So, the, but the diversity is a good thing in it's terms everything. of ensuring survivability. Everything. You know a lot about bees. Uh, well, you know, I mean, I read up before I talked to you and I keep reading. I mean, it's something I pay attention to. Like, I was really excited to learn that that France went above and beyond the oh. EU and banned all neonicotinoids last summer. It's really for us, though. Really. It's so important for our health not to be eating anything that has that. You know, we grew corn on the farm just for fun. Yeah. I, I love growing popcorn. Sure. I mean, I do too. how great is not having yeah. your own popcorn, right? I know. Um, and it's beautiful, too. It's beautiful. And, the bee, and so they, so if... Uh, uh, bear crop science and Monsanto say it is not uh, insect pollinated. Okay, I get that. It's wind pollinated. But if you watch honeybees run up and down, up and down, collecting pollen and taking it back to feed their babies, is can we not connect those two? Yeah. You know, but oh no, no, because it's not insect. It's just because it's not insect pollinated. Well, it doesn't mean, I mean, even if they're giving it a 10% boost in, or in productivity or whatever. No, but it, the, the point is that they're saying because they're not collecting the pollen and they're not interacting with the pollen, oh, it's I see. not insects. But they're still getting covered so in it. They're covered in it and yeah. they're taking it back to feed their babies. So you don't have to qualify that pollen doesn't have to be clean for insects because it's a wind-pollinated product. Uh, uh, well, I mean, I don't yeah. think anyone ever accused them of being <laughs> honest with their arguments. Oh, it's just horrible. I was listening to you and Mark Bittman's uh, podcast about restaurants and how like 80% and all of that. I'd love to know what you, what, like a little more of your philosophy. I'm totally on board with it, but. Well, I just, I, here's the thing. I mean, I, I enjoy eating out. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoy eating out as much for the conviviality as for the food in a lot of cases. It's an excuse to get together sometimes in a fairly large group. Yeah. And, you know, cooking for a fairly large group in your house is a commitment. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of cleanup and mm-hmm. it can be, you know, draining. Mm-hmm. So restaurants are an excellent place to go meet people mm-hmm. and yuck it up. Right. Um, I also appreciate how many people are employed by the restaurant mm-hmm. industry mm-hmm. who otherwise would maybe not be. Yeah. That's not uh, nothing by any means. My, my practice as a home cook, because it's now gone on for a pretty long time and has reached a pretty high level of mm-hmm. commitment, but also just, you know, skill. I've been doing this a long time and I care about it and I put in the hours and I grow a lot of stuff and I, I understand a lot of forms of fermentation and mm-hmm. um, ways to add, add value both in terms of flavor and also just interest and, and durability and whatever. And also your season, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and also, you know, there's a lot of satisfaction to, you know, if we wanted to, we could be vegetable independent year round. It would not be the world's most interesting diet, but we could get there. Yeah. Um, For me, restaurants are very expensive. Mm -hmm. And if they're not expensive, they're expensive somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So if you're paying a little for junk food, Mm -hmm. the cost of that food is on someone else's balance sheet, Mm -hmm. but somebody's paying for that food. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So I don't go to those sorts of restaurants because they're dishonest in terms. The economics of those restaurants mm-hmm. is is not doesn't jive with the way I try to spend my money. Yeah, uh, which is a form of voting. I feel. Yeah, um, and then other restaurants ranging from you know some of the local places that I, I know the owners and I, I, I go with some regularity, but I don't go out to eat much. I prefer to cook at home. Yeah. And I find, for example, I think the easiest illustration is that the markup on the wine list makes me crazy. Yeah. I resent it and yeah. I get angry. And if I'm going out mm-hmm. to be entertained and to be fed by somebody, I don't want to start off pissed off mm-hmm. the minute I open the menu. <laughs> and I often am yeah. because it's highway robbery. Mm-hmm. It is. And it just, like, that's not how I want to start right. my experience. Yeah. And there have been times when I've been looking at the wine list and I've been looking around at the extremely tasteful renovation mm-hmm. of the place that I used to know from before. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't want to pay for your fucking renovation <laughs> by paying $30 for a $10 bottle of wine. I'm, yeah. Or 50 you know, for a $15 bottle. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. And yeah. so, like, and look, I admit to being cantankerous yeah. and I admit to having strong opinions and I like what I like. Yeah. Um, and I'm not anti-restaurant, mm-hmm. but I tend not to go out to eat very much. You know, there's something, so we eat in the same community, and yeah. I think, um, you know, a hundred bucks to for two people for dinner is a treat. Yeah. And, and, and I'm thrifty in some ways, and I, I'm really extravagant in others. Sure, we all um, But to me, it's, I just go, oh, this is just going to be here, $100. And, and it's not, that's not even close, like $170, but then it's... It's hard for me to get over the idea that if it's just this beautiful little plate of pasta, unless there's really exquisite company, I, yeah. I think, and then I think, gosh, if we were home, we well, could just be just stretching out it. and let me just, and, but yeah, I have uh, a real, pasta, especially yeah. for me, <laughs> pasta is one you, of the right? triggers right? for me, just because, well, <laughs> right. you know, I lived in Italy and my yeah, pasta game right. is pretty strong now. Yeah, I've been yeah. teaching pasta in Italy now. <laughs> right. And you're getting this tiny little. <laughs> uh, well, it's not even the portion size so much. It's more just the, and I understand if it's handmade pasta, there's a lot of work that goes mm-hmm. into that, but I enjoy that work. Oh, yeah. I don't want to pay someone else to do that oh, work. Nice. There are yeah. there are people that I want to pay to do work mm-hmm. for me mm-hmm. because I don't want to do it or I'm not able to. Yeah. Making pasta is not one of those things. <laughs> You'll never order pasta. <laughs> Almost never. No. That's yeah. awesome. But so what is like what it like what do you like to eat out and get? Well, for example, I love to go to, to Sushimakyo in Kingston because oh, okay. his fish is wonderful. He's yeah. a great guy. He's got skill. Yeah. Um, and it's the best sushi outside of the city, on this side of the city, really. I mean, yeah. it's it's and so I love that mm-hmm. because for me to go out and buy like eight or ten different kinds of fish of that quality yeah. and that, that would be a ridiculous waste of my time. Oh, that's interesting. So for like something like that, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm always, and I just, I love sushi, so. Um, <laughs> but, you know, his fish is impeccable and a lot of fish is not. Yeah. You know, so like supermarket sushi is really a bad idea because yeah. that's farmed fish and it's usually really badly farmed. Yeah. You know, when Gerard was on, we talked about, because you mentioned fish farming early on, he was saying, look, the future of fish is farming. It just has to be done properly. Yeah. And there are different ways that they can actually have polycultures. They do a vertical thing where the fish are in pens on the surface, yep. and then they grow kelp below that, and the yep. shellfish in cages or on ropes nice. hanging down in the kelp. Right. And you can make an incredible amount of food yeah. from like a quarter acre of ocean. There's also the idea that all of that's hooked into greenhouse work, mm-hmm. you know, where the where that's getting filtered out through the fish and exactly. the, you know, 
the kelp it, cleans yeah. the fish poop and right. the shellfish filter yeah. the water yeah. and you end like up with water. Like a permaculture kind of. Yeah, well, you yeah. end up with water that's cleaner than it was before. Awesome. You grew all this food in it. Right, right. Every, and the farmers actually make money because shellfish and finfish are, you know, that's a valuable crop. Yeah. So they can actually pay their people and yeah. give them health insurance. And, you know, so if it's not sustainable for the people on the shore, right. it's not sustainable because right. nobody will continue that business. Right. Except right. as an act of charity, which is not a business. Right. So um, the. The, the it's interesting to me like I had a I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about sort of you know home beekeeper, beekeepers who are curious because I know you guys do a ton of education yeah. and, and you're all super friendly and knowledgeable but um, <laughs> I wanted because most people are not going to become beekeepers yeah. but most people shop for groceries mm-hmm. so in the same spirit of how we open talking about sustainable fish is there are there crops that people should specifically embrace or avoid in the supermarket to encourage? Yes. Okay. So oh, yes. lay it on me. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, most of our honeybees commercially, and that means the volume of honeybees in the U.S., go to almonds. Mm-hmm. It is a rough, rough existence for those bees. Um, breaking it down, they have to be uh, fed a lot and grow quickly in order to go into almonds. They are paid on per frame of bees. Mm. So you can imagine what that looks like. Uh, uh, artificial pollen, uh, corn syrup, get them big, get them strong, go into almonds. almonds. So it's like feedlot cattle but bees. Yeah. So they go in, then they come right back out. They either go to the Montanas to rest or they go straight into more pollination. Uh, tractor trailers, really rough. So I say if there's one thing you can do for honeybees is buy organic almonds because it's not perfect. We're certified organic, mm-hmm. a USDA certified at our farm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not perfect. I can see there's a hundred ways you can, but you're trying and you're efforting. So I would say organic almonds. It mm-hmm. sends a message to the organ- to the almond industry. We don't want to do this. And really bees on farms, put bees back on farms. Mm-hmm. Don't do stuff in your farming that you cannot have honeybees. Mm-hmm. So we speak at NOFA, uh, the Northeast Organic Farmers Association yeah. that certifies uh, USDA. And we say bees on farms. Like, even if you're organic and you're doing all the right thing, maybe that one time you're not going to do the right thing, you're thinking about those honeybee hives and you're right. thinking, no, no, right. I'm going to kill them and that's not going to work. And putting bees back on the farm so you don't have to drive them in and drive them out. Like, what's wrong with that idea? And it's like, oh, well, we couldn't possibly, we have to spray the king bud, the blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, maybe the king flower isn't going to be the, you know, I just think it's that uh, breaking that back of that huge farming situation. Um, and honeybees, that idea of putting bees back on farms is... Uh, Kind of a soapboxy subject for us. No, but that's that's yeah. good because you know most of us, and it's not as if we're not. I mean, we live in a world right now where where it's there's just a constant assault of of injustice and horrible story on top of horrible story. So, making, I think, giving people some sense of empowerment mm-hmm. that they can make a difference with yeah. choosing to shop one place versus another, yep. like the farmers market versus the big box supermarket, yeah. or um, you know, buying the organic almonds, mm-hmm. even if you can't afford all organic food yeah. or whatever. That's right. certainly, if your kid loves almond milk like mine does, yeah. just make it the organic stuff. Right, right. Something I think, like that. I think shopping local is definitely the first, and mm-hmm. then organic. And buying your honey locally whenever possible. Eyeballs on the beekeeper. Yeah. Yeah, know your beekeeper. We all have like websites. I get my pigs we all have social media. Yeah. You can Google somebody. You can mm-hmm. look up their apiary. You can see their farm. Sure. Um, and just know your beekeeper. And then you get to know your beekeeper, too. Yeah. You know, and that... Um, giving local gifts, it's amazing in the, uh, come Christmas time, will people come in, you know, local insurance guys, I need two cases, 
because they're going to give them out as gifts. You know, mm-hmm. that kind of just that supporting local agriculture is yeah, super Yeah, and who important. doesn't love honey, right? Right, it's pretty easy. Well, and also there's the um, there's that the allergy angle too, right? That yeah. When it has the pollen in it, it, it actually does. gives you, an, it helps boost your immunity. Right, against... a little bit of histamine effect every time you take it. We say a teaspoon for health. Mm-hmm. Every morning, not before you, not uh, before you put in your tea, because you're burn off the pollen at that right, point. Right. But just a so little teaspoon of health. Don't heat it. And honey that's crystallized mm-hmm. means that it is natural honey, and it hasn't been overheated, so right. it has all those enzymes and pollen. So I actually love honey when it's crystallized. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's easier to deal with, my right? It's not that weird spaghetti thing where you're right. trying to roll it around. Yeah, it's a mess. It gets everything right. sticky. He and calls we, it he calls it the sticky virus because right. it gets on everything. Everything. Yeah. We, when we do like tastings and stuff, and people scoop it across, and you see that line of honey that lends down the front of their yeah. shirt, and you're yeah. like. Well, you shouldn't have taken as much. I don't know yeah. what to tell you. But I love crystallized honey. And I think, um, you know, you put it on the end of a spoon in the, at night and you're just looking for a sweet or something and mm-hmm. just lick it like... Yeah. Well, and it's yeah. just, it's so complex and so interesting. Yeah. And it changes every couple of weeks here. Our honey changes based on the floral source. And, and we have um, we have two honey flows, right? We yeah. have a fall flow because of all these invasives like yeah. goldenrod and other things yeah. that, that maybe we don't love, but they yeah. do give our bees more food at the end of the season. They do. They do. Knotweed is a huge invasive, big, big problem. Japanese knotweed, yeah. right. right. Uh, makes a beautiful red, dark, caramely kind of just delicious honey. And we have kind of, we say, a cult following for it because mm-hmm. that dark honey, not every year we get it. And people will be like, yeah, I got the dark stuff. And we're mm-hmm. like, yeah. And then locust honey in the spring. We didn't get a locust flow this year. Last year we did. And we got beautiful white honey that was just, mm. it's sweet, but it's not insipid. And it'll crystallize beautifully. And it's almost like it looks creamed. And so mm-hmm. we'll say it's naturally creamed. Because mm. a lot of creamed honeys, they, um, you take the honey, you overheat it, you heat it past its crystalline point. Then you introduce a small crystal of a honey that you like. But by then, you're just... Here we go with the, just the sweet, uh, no nutritional value kind yeah, of. It's just sugar, yeah, it's just Yeah. So I think uh, naturally crystallized honey is the way to go. And then if people don't like it, you just warm it up a little and, bit. And so when somebody says like this echinacea honey that you brought me or the, or the, yeah. the locust honey that you just talked about, um, is it simply a function of the fact that if you give the bees enough of one kind of flower that's close by, they don't need to go further afield? And so you can you can just expect that it's going to be a super high percentage of that flower. So you can yeah. label it that way. Yeah, pretty much. We actually don't label it that way. We just say that's what it is. Because labeling it is a little disingenuous. I mean, you'd really, you could get Because they clo- still do go around. Because they go everywhere. And, yeah. Right. Even the echinacea honey. The only reason we know echinacea is probably our most uh, strict varietal, we can really say, is on the farm we grow acres of it it is blooming when nothing else is blooming and every bee butterfly bug is Mm -hmm. on it and it's about waist high Mm -hmm. and it is beautiful you just lean down and look and it's just everything is on it every shiny little bug of any kind so and we know there's nothing else foraging it's before the knotweed so we'll put supers on then and we'll take it off because we do sell it back to um, the people that we grow the uh, echinacea for. Mm-hmm. Oh, so they're using the roots from for the chicoric acid for a beauty product. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, all right. So tell me about the book. Oh, we did it. A couple so, years ago. It was a couple right? years ago. It's called Following the Wild Bees. Right. I got to do it with a um, this I mentioned earlier, Tom Seeley, Doctor Thomas yeah, Seeley. He's at Cornell. He's at Cornell. Really amazing, beloved beekeeper scientist um, in our community. He's just really the number one. And it was really interesting to go up to Cornell and see. But one of the f- most fun things I find with bees is to find the wild colonies. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can do that by this function called bee liner, bee hunting. And in the early 1800s, that's how we would get our honey. We would go out to the woods, we would find the bees. You can still 
find people whose grandpas did it, and maybe they helped. But it's a function of capturing bees on flowers, feeding them a little um, sugar water, maybe on a comb, keeping them quiet, mm -hmm. letting them uh, out, and letting them orient to the little box that you have, mm -hmm. and then they'll come back uh, because there's not a lot, and it's easy nectar source. So they're like... That's how you can say it's a varietal honey because mm. it's the closest, like you're saying, the most abundant. Right. Same idea goes for this. You mark them with like a little um, watercolor paint and then start timing them. And then you can actually follow them to their nest. It can take a day or two, but mm -hmm. uh, it's a really cool thing to find. And and the, the goal of that, apart from you know the thrill of the chase or whatever, and yeah. an excuse to be in the woods and have fun. That's uh, pretty much all is of there, it. <laughs> when you find a wild, I mean, are you trying to then... Um, interbreed or yeah we know they're going to swarm right because they're wild and they're healthy so there's a certain um, time of the year like right around now yeah you put out um, bait hives uh, to capture those swarms yeah and then you just bring them back and put them in your yep. and breed with them make sure we keep track of those um you also uh you know sometimes you'll find other people's bees by doing this because they're managed colonies it's not always a perfect science but to be able to find the wild bees is really special because you know they're they're healthy and they're um, reproducing and being able to be sustainable on their own. And so you and you feel that their their survival rates in the wild are due to the distance between the hives. They do have this grooming behavior which keeps mm -hmm. the mites at bay. Yep. Um, and they you think they have resistance to some diseases? I think I think probably it's a matter of nutrition. It's mm -hmm. a huge part of their resistance. So really good clean forage. Um, so, and so these are like far from anything. industrial farming or anything. Always, highways, yeah. I think any, yeah. I mean. All of it comes down to common sense, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, scientists will debate and all of that, but really, it comes down to common sense, which is if you have, if you mm -hmm. eat good, clean forage out of your front yard, yeah. right, and you're careful where your fish comes from, you're careful. You were saying you know your pork vendor. Yeah, no. my guy what raises pigs up the road. My, it's just my pig farmer, I pig guess. Farmer. <laughs> I get half a pig every fall and take it apart myself. Right, yeah. right. so that's back to nature, too, um, so, which makes you healthier, which makes you vital, which makes your children, so. which makes your... yeah. I mean, we can only do what we can do, for sure. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and so the book kind of <clears throat> recounts the sort of... It, how to do it. How to do it. And kind of his philosophy on why to do it. And um, it's a beautiful book. It's called Following the Wild Bees. Yeah, yeah. And, well, you, you yeah. Asked the, the, and you made a nice site for it, too. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's good. So yeah. you're still using the graphic design a little bit. I do. I, did, you work, I did. did you lay out the book? Or did you, I did lay out the book. Okay. And uh, it was a fun process because he would write, write, write. And then we'd relay it out so we could see where the images would hit. And then we'd decide there'd need to be another image about that. So it was a real collaborative. And you took the pictures? Yeah, most uh, the whole how-tos for sure. Yeah, Great. he had some old stuff. And it's for sale in the shop? It is for sale. I remember back um, when we first met, I bought uh, Honey Bee Democracy from you, which is a fantastic book. Yeah. Even if you're not planning on keeping bees. Yeah. He just released another book about oh, yeah? a couple weeks called, called The Lives of Bees. Uh -huh. And it is beautiful. It's kind of everything he's learned about the bees. And it's accessible. Um, if you're ever interested in bees, it's something you can read, take away from, and it's beautifully written. I had nothing to do with it, but huge support. I just I remember being blown away by the the complexity of their society, but also the um, the amount of information they convey by dancing when they mm -hmm. come back to the hive to tell yeah. other bees where the food source is that yep. they found and how far away and which angle and distance relative to the sun. And amazing, mm -hmm. amazing. absolutely phenomenal. In the dark. Yeah. All of that. Building comb at the right angle, ten degrees. It's an amazing, it's really, you know, I think ants are supposed to be really this cool, though. I don't know. I think well, I could Well, there are a lot of incredible architects <laughs> in the insect right? kingdom. I think, ants are, I think ants are up there as far as complexity and um, altruistic, self-removal, all of that, things that bees do. Well, yeah, because you, you have to be, right? It's only about the society. Mm -hmm. The individual doesn't matter. In so Super except, organism. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's, so that's kind of an amazing model because it, 
it has more to do. It's almost as if each bug is is like a neuron in mm -hmm. a in a in a brain, as opposed to an, an individual in a society yeah. in a certain way. Yeah, I've always you know, uh, growing I grew up in Woodstock a little bit when mm -hmm. I was tiny, um, and then when I came back, my mom was quite ill, mm -hmm. and I sometimes see she had diabetes. She wasn't like it was just a long, 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 long road. But sometimes I see Woodstock as like a little super colony because mm -hmm. it took care of my mom in a way that a nursing home or Los Angeles or maybe even Westchester County couldn't because someone would call me in the middle of the day and say, your mom had diabetic insulin shock at the grocery wherever and or at housed mm -hmm. and they've taken the ambulance, but I've got her dogs. Should I meet you at the house? You know, that kind of, I always knew she was cared for. Mm -hmm. And I always felt like Woodstock had that kind of, you know, if you see someone walking snowing, they've got some groceries, you just pull over. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I gave a friend a jump just the other day, actually. Right? Because I saw you, her with her hood open. You feel that, that, right? Everything all right? Yeah. 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 And I feel like Woodstock has that similar kind of um, nature that I think some uh, a lot of these larger communities have lost, and, and for certain in the cities, that is tough to find your own tribe. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, I lived in the city for a decade so in New York mm. City, so so you know there are there are many, many, many overlapping villages in mm -hmm. the city, but yes, it's not quite the same as just having the one mm -hmm. village, mm -hmm. as it were. Um, it's a it's a very different feel. Yeah, and you can feel much more alone in the city because it's kind of overwhelming. It's crazy. Yeah, Los Angeles, same. Yeah, well, LA is a whole other animal just because the car is an, adds an extra level of removal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, in New York, you, at least you can be out on the street and walking around. <laughs> and so, not talking to anybody. Well, I mean, and but, feeling you know, exquisitely lonely. <laughs> yeah, you can be, but I mean, but it's very different from being in your car stuck mm -hmm. on the 10 for 90 minutes. No, that's true. Yeah. You but know. there's stuff to do in LA that you can interact with people. Oh, it's a great city. I love going yeah. there. I just but, hate getting around there. It's terrible. It's gotten so much worse. In the last 20 it years. Took me, it, took, it took me 70 minutes to get from uh, Hollywood to Brentwood That's for crazy. breakfast <laughs> on one, the last time I was there. I couldn't believe it. That's and I was awful. doing surface roads and I was like... Right. You're like, I'm going to beat this. Didn't make any... I mean, no. it's just ridiculous. Like, it's true. kind of obscene, honestly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's—I was—it's yeah. not even like I was in Silver Lake or downtown or anything. I mean, it's no. not like it's just not. Yeah, it's not that many miles. No. It's funny. A couple of years ago, my brother um, wanted to move back east. Blah blah blah. He still wants to move back east, but so we found this like fixer upper right near the farm. Yeah. For like fifty-five thousand wow. dollars, and so now he has a, has a house back east because it keeps his brain sane, being in LA, but knowing he has this uh, kind of cool old farmhouse to work on. When that's he comes great. Back, yeah. Well, and you get to see each other more too. Right? That's true. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean Green County, man. There's there's bargains up there. There's a lot of bargains. It's just outside of the reach of New York, I think. It just makes it a skosh too long, the drive. Yeah, because it would be a solid three hours, right? And that's a lot. To your farm, if you were coming from the city? Maybe or five or six to that Green farm? County. No, just oh, yeah, you're just trying to... To, to those, nobody of, you, to those of you who might yeah, be listening terrible. to Green County, it's, it's terrible. It's, it's, my, it's, it's ten ugly. hours. It's ugly. There's nothing happening. <laughs> it's not beautiful rolling Plus, hills. you'll get stung by bees. Don't, don't come. <laughs> There's lots and lots of bees. <laughs> This that property that we have, it's been uh, renovated now for years and years. We've been working on it, and people are just thrilled. They stop by and say, "Thank you so much. It looks so good." It's, yeah. it's a nice, it's a really sweet community. It's not sophisticated, and I do love coming home to Woodstock and maybe it's popping into a restaurant or knowing that um, it's a different cultural thing. But I do love it up there a lot. Yeah, well, I mean, in Woodstock, we now have a lot going on. We have venues and restaurants and it's like true. bars. And the it's, it's like a real hopping downtown. Yeah, it's like you can go listen to music again. Finally, right? No, I so support that, even if I'm dead tired 
I try to drag myself out of I try to go see live music regularly. It's to support just yeah. the whole concept. Well, and also, I mean, you and I both have a lot of friends in the industry, yeah. so we want to yeah. go see our friends play, too. And remind us how old we've all gotten. <laughs> I don't need any help being reminded of that. But um, So the... Uh, the traveling and the the work with um, the organization and the, yeah. that's going to be an ongoing thing. It is gonna... definitely it's bees for development. Yeah, it and feels you were in really... London for that as well. Just, I was. They had now. a garden party. Okay. Uh, it's they somehow it's a very small nonprofit, like I said, based in Wales. Uh, but they got an invitation a few years ago to have a garden party at the Marlborough House, which is part of the Buckingham Palace like holdings, I guess you yeah. call it. Yeah. Um, so this year uh, they asked me to come over just to kind of represent uh, North America and. Uh, her Royal Highness, the Duchess of Cornwall, Camilla, uh, was uh, came, which Fantastic. maybe she's not the most loved royal, <laughs> whatever, staying out of the politics. Sure. Uh, but it was great because the organization went, it was about 200 people they had. Uh, the last time they did this was two years ago, that's biannually, and this time they had 650. Wow. And Fordham and Mason was a huge sponsor, and um, Thorn is a manufacturer of beekeeping gear there, a huge supporter of bees for development. So it was a really fun event, and I got to meet, and I curtsied, really. Wow. Come on. Which is not something that you I know. often I have cause to do. No, I know. I wore a dress in the rain, and I curtsied, which, you know, there's that. Did you practice beforehand, the curtsying? Well, to be honest, I didn't know if I had to curtsy, mm -hmm. and I was—I thought, you know, Americans, we don't curtsy, and then I, it was cold, and it was raining, and I wanted to wear pants, and and I said to somebody, Could, is it possible to wear pants? And she looked at me and she said, absolutely not. And I was like, copy that. Yeah, they okay. take their protocol really seriously. I was like, tights. And then I asked, I asked her, I said, curtsying? And she said, would you think it's subservient? And I thought, no. And she said, I said, I, I would think it would be polite. And she said, it is polite and you should do it. And I was like, no problem. I are you supposed like to, which is there one leg that's supposed to go like in back? Yeah, I think there's a little bit of a right leg in the back and a little, uh, it's, she called it a bob. You just bob. Uh -huh. So I got good grades on it. Good. Got a, got a photo. Excellent. Check. Next. <laughs> Excellent. Future Queen of England. Yeah, Check. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. And just the idea that it was more exposure for bees for development and that she yeah, spent time hearing bees for development, bees for development, and then whatever effect that'll have for um, bees for development. It's, it is impeccable work. And I think I've done talks here about it. And uh, someone asked me uh, this last talk I did, raised their hand, and they said, how do we know the money's really going to go there? And I looked at them and I said, because you have my word. Mm -hmm. That's it. Like, because we're kind of jaded here. Like, you know, the American Red Cross and they make these, really, the salaries and the corruption and all the stuff we've heard, I think makes us not want to give. But I think we should all give to something. Yeah. You know, you just, just something. But you can, there are now, blessedly, there are orgs that vet other orgs for yeah. how much of your yeah. dollar goes to Char the cause. There's charity ones, yeah, yeah. To, to make sure. Yeah. And that should all, it always is transparent. But before, we couldn't Google it. Now we can. Yeah. Yeah, but impeccable work. That's great. Yeah, yeah. And you still, um, you have classes regularly at the shop on we Saturdays, do. right? Yeah, we teach pretty much year-round. It's one of the uh, best things we do, and it's also one of the most exhausting things, as, sure. you, as you know, right. as a but teacher. But spreading the word, I mean, it makes a difference. Yeah, no, it does. It's, and it's a complicated thing. I mean, it's not complicated in the big picture, but there are a lot of details and nuances, and there's, there's stuff you have to know how to do. Yeah. And, um, and you teach different tiers, right? You have like yeah. beginning and then higher up yep. for more accomplished or yeah. people who want to expand. Exactly, yep. And okay. we're always there. We say that um, we're just part of a beekeeping community and we just want to be part of it. And um, when we first started, we said, you know, we just like to have a really strong beekeeping community, be part of a really big beekeeping yeah. community. And then at about year five, we were like, okay, <laughs> check, you know, and we really do feel like we mentor lots and lots of people. You don't have to buy your bees from us. You don't have to... 
you know, just come in and ask us uh, to show us how your bees are doing. Ask questions, and we give out just a ton of advice. And yeah. um, and we just teach what we know. There's a lot of ways to keep bees. There's a lot of ways to make pasta, right? right? There's a lot of ways to do a lot of things, and we just teach what we know. Yeah, and you also there's one other thing you do, right? There's a cat skill. Oh, club. The club, right? It's a Catskill Mountain Beekeepers Club. And my friend Mike Laminek is uh, oh, yeah. part of that. Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah. He's a great guy. Yeah, yeah they both are. Yeah, um, So what, and that's just a local kind of enthusiast kind of... Kind of like you would, it's kind of a little geeky and, um, you know, you get to talk about your bees and uh, we meet at the Shamrock House in East Durham, mm-hmm. which is an old Irish pub. Mm-hmm. So it's... We used to meet at this cat's, at this very kind of Cornell cooperative, beautiful space, really lovely, but we outgrew it. So now we meet in an Irish pub. And so you'll, someone will have a Guinness, be asking a question, and it really makes for a very fun meeting because people eat dinner before and then oh, come across and listen to the speaker and have a beer. And are you seeing, just overall now, because you're several years in, are you seeing like a, an increase in interest? You, you get more customers, more people taking hives yeah. home and... We thought it would peak, honestly. Didn't it seem kind of trendy on the news? Everybody knows about the problem with bees. So we thought we'd be like, not maybe one and done, but mm-hmm. maybe four or five and done. But it continues to do well for us. So uh, we'll always be in beekeepers. We'll always keep bees. Um, the shop will be there as long as the community it's, adds value to the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's still it's still doing very well. So uh, we're in it as long as they're in it. And we feel so grateful. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Well, thanks for talking to me. Oh, thank you. It's really fun. <laughs> yeah, good. Megan Denver, HudsonValleyBeesupply.com, H-V-B-E-E on Instagram. Check them out if you're in the neighborhood. They're super friendly and generous. They have a hive in the store. It's a cool kind of glass thing that connects to the outside, but you can see the bees doing their thing inside. They teach classes. They've got everything you need, and they have their own honey there, which is wonderful. Can't say enough good things about it. I'm Cookblog on Instagram cookpod.net acookblog.com if you want to contact me theme music by my son Milo Barrett smilob.com thanks for listening and come back next week